0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Austin Choi Fitzpatrick and Ernesto Verdeja, who are the editors, along with Douglas Irvin Erickson, of Wicked Problems, The Ethics of Action for Peace, Rights, and Justice, new from Oxford University Press. Um Austin and Ernesto, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us.
1: Thanks so much for having
0: us. Uh, So I wonder if we can start off by having each of you say a little bit about uh, who you are and how it is uh, the two of you and your partner in crime came to this particular project. Uh, Austin, why don't we start with you?
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having us. It's really, really exciting to be back here at the New Books Network. I love what you all do. Um, I know Doug wishes he was here because he was one of these, he's an important part of this origin story. It was a conversation we were having uh, at one of the many conferences we as academics go to about sort of abstract and theoretical issues. And uh, and we came away from a panel asking ourselves, you know, you know the, the fact is that a lot of these Struggles for peace, rights, and justice um, have ethical dilemmas that are the the result of action and not theorizing. And so that's this book kind of came out of a conversation, uh, you know, back in the day, the three of us, but particularly from Doug. So if Doug were here, he would have told you that. But what I'll say for myself is that you know somebody like most folks in in the field, and when we we'll start unpacking what the field means, I think in a little bit, but somebody interested in making uh, making change in the world, that like can you know came from human rights, and some work in humanitarian uh, affairs, and humanitarian aid and intervention, and then moved on into social movements, sort of theorizing and praxis. And, And across all of those, I've just had this enduring question about how do we know what the right thing is to do? Uh, how do we do it? And then what happens next? And that's you know really easy on paper. It's really easy in the classroom. Sometimes as educators, we make it seem a little easier than it actually is. But in fact, all of us know that taking you know, sort of taking action leads to contingencies, it leads to unintended consequences. And, uh, and, and I'm presaging some of what we're going to be talking about, I think. But that experience in my own life of taking action, being part of social movements, collective action struggles, et cetera, is what led me to the dilemmas That then sparked my interest. So when Doug said, we should really do something about this, you know, I said, yes, I love it. Let's let's do it for sure.
0: Uh, And Ernesto, how did you get mixed up with this crowd?
2: Yeah, I think, well, part of the problem is that I actually know both of them. So we go back uh, pretty (laughs) far, especially with Austin. But I've known Doug for a number of years and both just terrific scholars, but also really thoughtful and inquisitive people who are committed to practical justice and, and peace building work as well. And so my interest in this really comes from a slightly different background from Austin's. Austin has a lot of experience doing social movements work um, both in the United States and around the world on a variety of different justice topics. Um, I've focused mostly on questions of genocide and mass atrocity. So I've always been really interested in thinking about not only the causes of these types of of, uh, phenomena, but also how to prevent them. And having spent some time also working in the broader human rights atrocity prevention space, you really start realizing that the people who are most sophisticated and the deepest thinkers are often just bouncing from one type of response to another. I mean, they, they really are just in a reactive mode. And these are really sophisticated thinkers. We're talking about either in the US government or in foreign governments or the UN or human rights organizations. And I was really curious about how do they think of... Not only what is the just or right thing to do, but how do you trade off different types of possible policies and answers and responses off the cuff, on the fly in real time when mass atrocities are happening? So my interest kind of comes from that background. But in speaking to Doug and to Austin, we realize that these types of really profound ethical dilemmas, or what we're calling wicked problems, and that's the title of the book, of course, they come up in all sorts of different peace-building environments. So My interest really comes out of that and then trying to expand and think a little bit more holistically, more collectively about these types of challenges.
0: So you both, I think, hinted at this, but let me ask the direct question. Who's the book for? Who's the intended audience here? Yes, a, a superb
1: question. You know, I, I feel like this uh, uh, over time, this has uh, I want to say blossomed or evolved because we were really starting uh, from where we you know as we just introduced ourselves from where we were planted. Um, you know, me coming from social movements for human rights, Ernesto coming from mass atrocity, Doug with it with similar sort of background that that Leafs between those, and I and I feel like as. As we were working on the contributors especially, we realized that a lot of the questions we were asking at the sort of international level also played into uh, challenges experienced by Folks doing collective uh, action organizing in the United States. Some of it seemed like there's a, like a, there's a bit of a historical angle to it. Then it turns out that these are actually enduring and contemporary problems that we'll probably have into the future. And then just as one sort of international or social issue was uh, seemingly laid to rest, another one sparked anew. So we're in we're sort of writing this, you know, like uh, trying to trying to you know build the plane while flying in a lot of ways. And it led to not how we started, but where we really have ended up now as the book is about to, you know, is about to hit the hit the market, with a sense that it's it's for anyone interested in explaining and on better understanding how to make social change. In the midst of the space that they're trying to change. Now, what I just didn't say was it's for activists or it's for progressives or it's for, it really is. The dilemma here is if we see the change, you know, we, if we're going to be the change we seek in this world and we see that opportunity and then we look into the sort of Skill individual skill sets we have, the organizations we're part of, or the larger milieu we're in, and then we take action. This really helps us ask bigger questions about what's next and, and, and sort of the complexities that come out of that. So this is a sort of a, tr- a tr- I hope it's not a trite answer, but it's the true one, which is that this is for folks who see themselves taking those steps into social change for the first time or standing and reflecting on, you know, sort of the action they're in the midst of or or have just taken. And I really, I think that's a, that's a left or a right thing. It really is a is sort of an academic thing, but it's also a practitioner thing. And maybe Ernesto, you can talk about the range of folks we've got in the book, because I'm speaking as sort of a, you know, scholar, maybe a little bit of an academic, and maybe a little bit of an activist. I don't know. But we really started playing with some of those identities and roles when we were inviting contributors. So there's, you know, all of these contributors in the book. I don't Ernesto, you want to maybe say something about that? Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, let me add just kind of a few points to this, and then I'll I'll maybe say a little bit about how the book is structured and the types of folks whom we invited to join us. Um, But I think one thing that is particularly interesting and, and frankly kind of neat about this book is that we decided to avoid writing just another academic book that focuses on one particular issue in a narrow and deep way. So say, what are the ethics of using military force and humanitarian interventions? There's a ton of book on those. Uh, on those topics, Um, or for instance, investigating what are the nature of moral actions in the most abstract way of thinking from kind of a philosophical background for the purposes of thinking about how to advance justice. There's a whole sophisticated scholarly literature on that. But a lot of those types of topics are either uh, a little bit divorced from empirical reality, so they're kind of disconnected and kind of thinking through how to connect that to real practical challenges is left a little underthought, underbaked. Or there are a lot of books that, again, focus on these narrow but deep um, types of topics in, in a kind of very focused way, in a very stylized way, but they don't really give us much of an insight or set of reflections more broadly on the nature of ethical dilemmas in peacebuilding work. So we really wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, Many of the contributions, in fact, all the contributions are relatively short, they're easily readable, they're pithy, they're punchy, they deal with real concrete challenges, but they also generalize out of that to think about the nature of these really profound ethical dilemmas or wicked problems. And just to give you a sense of what that means, the book is constructed broadly along kind of three main areas. And we have scholars, practitioners, and uh, full-time practitioners who've contributed across all these three areas. The first part of the book focuses on the question of violence, one of the most vexing and longstanding questions in peacebuilding. When, if ever, is it appropriate to use violence in order to respond to some kind of injustice or some kind of harm? And we have a number of contributors there that deal with this question. It's really, I think, quite frankly, really provocative. We have, for instance, one contributor who starts off, Tony Gaskew, African-American former police officer, now a a scholar, and academic himself who talks about how the ethical dilemma in the use of violence is not whether violence should be used um, for the purpose of advancing social justice, but the ethical dilemma is for white Americans uh, to deal with the fact that Black Americans have a, a fundamental right to use violence to defend themselves and protect themselves against state repression. So the book starts off with a big bang. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting and provocative piece. We also have some other contributions in there from Liz O'Harris and, and Noam sandwise Beck and Kursa klein Reichman and Ashley Bohr, who also explore these issues of how to balance questions of the use of the violence or nonviolence in these, these types of scenarios. So broad range of contexts, but really kind of exploring that question of violence. That's the first part. There are a couple of other parts to the book. The second part is on leadership and organizations. And um, Austin is going to be able to say a lot more about that because he really was instrumental in bringing together some of those contributors. But it really looks at the ways in which leaders in social movements, activism, try to navigate difficult questions of, should you be more reformist? Should you be more radical? How do you make alliances with certain groups? What are the trade-offs in all of this? So there's a whole cluster of of, um, contributions there. And then just really quickly, lastly, there's another section where we focus on questions of what we refer to as systems and institutions. So we're looking at more organized actors like states or international organizations. And that involves everything from atrocity prevention to the use of sanctions to thinking about how to deal with states in the context of negotiating um, peace and justice efforts. But. Austin, you could probably say something about the kinds of contributors. I think what you there.
1: just what you just said is it's for everybody. Is that what you just said? I think that's I, what I for you for I'm detecting
0: a theme. This is yeah. good for the marketing people, right? But we, I mean, there is we, no one for whom this is not an appropriate text is what I'm getting.
2: Yeah, you no, know, but Steve, I mean, actually, you, make, you know, I mean, it is kind of funny, but you make a really good point. You know, the, the idea behind the book was we didn't want to just write another book for fellow academics. Um, there's a scholarly apparatus in there and there, it's all that stuff is there. And, you know, there are citations, et cetera. But it really is meant to engage a much wider range of readers and people who are dealing with these types of practical issues or want to kind of be able to explore it in, in, a, in a more thoughtful way. Sorry, Austin, go yeah, ahead.
1: You know, no, so now that I've said that this book is for everybody, let me say that, you know, one one group I have in mind in particular who I'm going to hand it to is people who think that change is easy and that the next steps are obvious because the cause is just. I may agree with that, but that doesn't help us together unpack what we should do next. Once you know action is engaged, and these are fundamental lessons from you know any any struggle, you know, violent, nonviolent politics, relationships. These are like familiar struggles, but uh, you know, often find in you know, we're all teaching in in you know schools focused on you know peace, rights, and justice. The three of us as editors, and we come in, you know, we, we have students who come in with a head full of steam, and rightly so and what i don't want is for that head of steam to sort of dissipate on first contact with uh, the real work and the challenge is uh, you know that the question that the you know the the book is trying to invite us into this reflection, not of "oh, here's a stone wall you'll hit," but here is a kind of like complicated equation that requires to sh- us to show up with our best selves, and not necessarily our best intentions. Well, I don't mean to put those in contrast, but actually, it, it requires us to think dynamically uh, in the moment we're in. And I and this is I'm just echoing Ernesto here, which is what I do most of the time. It, the fact is that that's not something that's in a textbook. That's more of a, of a, of a way of being. And it's easy then to look back with experience and say, oh, well, that's not how it's done. But that's not how the future gets made. The future gets made by, you know, people with a, uh, you know, a head full of steam and with moxie and, you know, vim and vigor, a whole bunch of old words for enthusiasm. So this book, I really hope, and now, now I'm trying to, now I'm saying, you know, it's for people who want to, Make change. That's my final answer. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute
0: myself now. That's my final answer. (laughs) So I mean, jumping off from there, one of the I, I uh spend a lot of time uh teaching and speaking to audiences of social work students and social work practitioners, uh almost exclusively in the domestic US context. Uh but that resonated with me so much as I was working my way through the book, is that it it really is sort of the 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 attention to the urgency and importance of these issues and sustaining energy and passion without being naive about the obstacles and the challenges and recognizing that if you are not thinking strategically, not just about the organizational challenges, but the real life ethical dilemmas to which there are not easy, obvious, simple, well, of course, the moral thing to do is X, right? These are are in many instances, lots of case studies of situations in which there isn't an easy, obvious answer to say, well, this is this is uh, what you should do and how you should do it. So let me use that as an opportunity to burrow down before we turn to section two, touch just a little bit more on on that first section um, and and Ernesto, you anticipated one of my questions, which was uh, I I love very much that you let off with that Tony Gaskew chapter because it really does sort of blow the roof off the place right up front, and I think will will provoke lots of people. But that section for me becomes this really thoughtful dialogue about how do we, if we recognize, I'll, I'll, I'll put this in the U.S. context, because that's where I know things, and I don't really know much about the rest of the world, um, that we inhabit a moment in which formal institutions of U.S. politics and policymaking are fundamentally broken in many, many ways, um, and that Um, if we are going to learn lessons from history, among other things, it is mass movement activity that right now is probably the most viable means of disrupting those broken systems and creating space where we've got more uh, 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 democratic politics that results in policies that serve more people. So in thinking about sort of the debate in section one between violent and nonviolent movement activity. And you know, to speak crudely, first chapter is sort of making the argument for violence, the second chapter making the argument against violence, the third chapter saying, well, there's there's maybe it's a little bit of both here, right? I was thinking about uh, Black Lives Matter movement, right? So we've got arguably the most widespread and sustained movement activity in all of recorded human history that had at its centerpiece reduction of policing as a means of social control and violence inflicted upon people. And here we are after that movement, largely nonviolent movement activity, uh, increasing police budgets rather than decreasing them. So that's that's an unbearably long way of saying, how do you, using that section of the book, think through, how do we make sense of that? Should we should we retain this commitment that a lot of movement activists have for nonviolence as a principle and as a strategic lesson about being most effective? Or is the work that tells us that nonviolence is most effective largely looking at international contexts? Is it possible that that's wrong and we need to expand our notion of what's moral and acceptable in the U.S.? So With apologies for the length of that question, he wants to dive in?
2: No, I mean, and, and, you know, the question just, it has so many different parts to it. It's such a rich question, and I think it deals with such a pressing ethical set of challenges that we're all facing right now, you know, particularly in the United States, which is the way you framed it. Um, So first of all, I wouldn't speak for the contributors themselves. I think it's actually worth looking at their contributions, and you can see how they not only make different types of arguments, but they marshal different types of justifications for their arguments because they're they're dealing with different dimensions of this big cluster of questions which is really one of state repression and structural injustice or structural violence and by that the latter i mean just kind of you know the systematic marginalization of people economically and socially and and politically Um, i think it's a really hard question because it partly depends on how one dives down and frames a specific question in other words if one is focusing on police brutality and police repression in the United States, which is, of course, a defining feature of of contemporary American politics, then one focuses on that kind of that sharp end of state policy, right? It's the really sharp, pointy part. And what do we do about that? But if you take a step back, so that would be, for instance, Tony Gaskew, who makes this really, again, this really provocative and I think fascinating argument coming out of the black radical tradition for saying that Black Africa, African-Americans, black Americans have the right to use force to defend themselves against the police. It's a constitutional right, it's part of the heritage of what it means to be American, and it's the right of that particular community. A different way of framing the question though, is to say, look, there's de- there are deep structural questions and deep structural injustices at play here. And we see that in the piece by Liz Theo Harris and Noam Sandweiss back where they talk about the focus on ending poverty. And for them, it's really an issue of poverty and and systematic harm and injustice that needs to be addressed. These other types of violence are symptomatic of that. Um, And they make an argument that if you don't include a wide swath of people in a kind of a sustained social movement effort, you're not gonna have any change. It's both a, a normative or moral argument, but it's also a practical argument. I mean, they do make the point basically that alternative approaches which rely primarily on violence don't really work very well. Um, what's neat about both of these chapters, and I'm just picking these two, and I'm going to hand it over to Austin because he'll have more to say about this, but what's neat about both of these chapters is they don't only make a philosophical or moral argument, but they think through the logic of it, and they also give us ways of trying to contend with these challenges, right? They really, they really try to canvas all the possible responses and make a compelling argument for why one should pursue one approach over the other. Um, Austin probably has more to say about this. And I would just add that connected to the social movement question, Austin, maybe you can touch on this. There are all also issues of leadership, who gets to speak, there's issues of representation, there's issues of alliances, how reformist or how radical should you be, etc. But Austin, you, you might want to add something.
0: So in Austin, as you do that, if you would sort of pick up on Ernesto's lead and finish up that conversation, then lead us into the to talking about what we should be paying attention to in section two.
1: Yeah, we're like reading each other's minds. That's perfect because I feel like this, uh, this question invites and I'm just you know repeating what said invites reflection at a couple of different levels and in the second section really invites us into the perspective of leaders as they wrestle with the mantle they've been given or chosen or or, the, or, or if it's a horizontally organized sort of or, you know a space you know the, the mantle that's somehow shared collectively across it this is a really complicated set of, of puzzles when it comes to who Who's gonna lead and what are they gonna lead and for what? And you know, sort of how how, how and for what and for which ends. And Ernesto just pointed out the complexity, the, the sort of the, the multiplicity of ends and the complexity of ends. And I think that just to zoom all the way back to that your question, Stephen, you know, the first thing I'm thinking of is like, well what everybody's rowing towards is a fundamentally different understanding of what it means in this country, let's say, to be American. It means it's something that looks much more like inclusive, uh, inclusive care because one is here, not predicated on class, race, gender, uh, other other identities or citizenship, which is ultimately the human rights train has tended to stop at the second to last station, which is, of course, citizenship, rather than going all the way onward toward something that looks more like, uh, you know, fundamentally protected, um, you know, sort of rights and, and, and Opportunities, so that's that. That's of course where my mind went was like, you know, it's gonna it's gonna take a revolution. Is where my mind went. But back to section two, so leadership in organizations was this the section we put together when we started realizing that a lot of these dilemmas were not necessarily just tactical and strategic. This exchange we just had about violence, but were also about identity and representation in the form of what kinds of people are leading, what kinds of organizations, and whether or not leader is the right verb there. So just for example, I was so happy that she was able to do this for us. Um, Min Dang, who's a a colleague uh, at the University of Nottingham, pulled together this piece called The Paradox of Survivor Leadership, where she wrestles with what does it mean for survivors of uh, exploitation to run a survivor network in solidarity with other survivors in the teeth of public opinion about their survivor status, and not just public opinion, but movement colleagues who should be coming along with us in the struggle, who misidentify what it means to be an ally. And then you know, this, the, the next chapter of that is, is Dan Myers, who wrestles with al- the question of allyship itself. So if we're actually you know, uh, aligning ourselves in collective action struggles for, you know, let's say, underrepresented communities, who can be a leader in positions of leadership? Is it only folks who actually come from within the, within the movement and are actually have that collective identity that's part of the struggle and the struggle's demands? Or can we represent as proxies for others others. And that's not, that's a sort of, now we're, we're not talking about grand strategy here. And we're not, you know, we're actually talking about, it was, sorry, was that about tactics? or Was that about identity? Or are those two things somehow, you know, intersecting in really, in really sort of complicated and sophisticated ways? And I'll just maybe, I'll just mention one more, you know, sort of chapter here, which is Alicia Sanchez-Gill, who runs a, a, a fund for, you know, community organizing and grassroots organizing in the wake of Black Lives Matter. She went and curated for us all of these uh, voices from grassroots organizers that are about uh, sort of horizontal leadership strategies, intersectional identities, uh, organizing when success—sometimes short-term success—can look like like medium-term to long-term. Did we do the right things? Sort or of questions about whether or not that success led to the outcome that the movement desired. And getting that takes us all the way from these kind of like abstract uh, and sophisticated but abstract ideas about tactics all the way to the point to the eye the view of folks who are operationalizing them. In the midst of their own lives, and asking, "Is is this working? And, and am I am I the right person? And what happens next?" And so, I, I really like the way that the book, and in, in some ways, this conversation goes from these big, big, big questions all the way to the point where somebody's got to do it, and then, and then, and then feel a certain way about it, talk a certain way about it, tell stories about it, so that it can turn into something new or something different. Was that did that work? Do we need to tweak it? And all of that happens in, in real people's lives in real time. And I'm so grateful that the that the activists and organizers who, 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 contributed here were able to do it in such a way that we can really, I feel like step, you know, see, I don't know, how to say step in their shoes, but like, you know, pull us alongside them and try to explain to us some of what, what that looks like to, to them.
0: And, and, you know, one of, one of the things that, that I, I particularly appreciated about the, the, the work in that section is the, the, the making evident all of that stuff that often when you're when you're in the midst of an organization and you're trying to do whatever the organization does you may be confronting these very kinds of dilemmas but depending on where you are they may not be they may be all happening sort of at this subterranean level right uh, that that you're you're not really conscious of them you're not thinking about them you're not thinking through i think for people who are doing that kind of work and who may be sort of feeling as if they are positioned in weird ways, right? You know, rich white people running organizations that serve low-income communities of color, right? Um, or, you know, the the Dan Myers chapter, right? Sort of a straight white guy uh, leading an organization for, for LGBTQ populations, right? What does that mean, right? What does that look like? How do you negotiate that? I, I, I think that there is so much there that, that, and this is some of my own backgrounds, that, that that having the opportunity to actively think through those organizational challenges in a way that you sometimes don't have the opportunity to do in the day-to-day because you're too busy keeping the lights on, um, I think is, is, again, going back to that sort of there's the, the, the academic, the abstract framework for those who want that, that the sort of the 30,000-foot philosophical question piece. But then there's also the, what the heck does this mean on the ground? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Just uh, uh, really awesome.
1: briefly. I mean, this is, uh, these are the chapters that I've had the most fun assigning to my students and saying, okay, now you saw the conundrum. What's the solution? And it turns out you've got to workshop it. You can't just, you can't off the cuff it. Right. <laughs> and that's, and that, I really love how that, that, the complexity that invites, you know,
2: readers into. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good, yeah, go ahead, Stephen. No,
0: no, I was going to go ahead, Ernesto, and then we'll tip on to section three in our last few
2: minutes. Sure. Or so. Yeah. Just as a final point on this, and this is kind of round off what Austin was saying. Um, one of the really things that were neat things about these contributions uh, is that we were able to bring people who are, in fact, leaders in a number of different LGBTQ efforts and women's rights efforts. And they're, they're basically leaders in these types of social movement organizations. So they can speak to us quite a bit about this issue of navigating identity, but also how to make alliances, thinking about the use of resources and how to work to collectively with others. So it's in that sense, the contributors cover a wide range of people with a wide range of experiences, which is kind of neat. But um, I can also say a little bit about part three, because I think part three really shifts. Yeah, it shifts gears quite a bit for the book. And in that respect, it's it's an attempt at trying to give us um, some sense of kind of a wide focus or a wide inclusive lens or approach to this question of wicked problems. So, you know, whereas the first two sections, the first one's about violence and the second section has a bunch of articles dealing with systems and institutions, or I'm sorry, with um, leadership and organizations, it's this third system, this third section that deals with systems and institutions. And what we mean by that is looking at the way more formalized actors deal with these types of ethical dilemmas and also how to actually contend with them so we have chapters for instance that deal with the law thinking of the laws institution under what conditions does one resort to the law in order to advance human rights and other conditions do you respond kind of critically and push up against the law and we start off with a really neat chapter by dina hurwitz who deals with these dilemmas in action as a lawyer herself, as a human rights attorney. So this isn't just an abstract question, but she's someone who works in Israel and and Palestine, occupied territories. So how do you negotiate these things? We have um, chapters from, for instance, from George Lopez and Beatrix Gagan Breiner who deal with the issue of sanctions. Governments love to pass sanctions against opponents, against enemies. But what are the responsibilities when you pass those sanctions? What obligations do the sanctions uh, enforcers have to actually help that society rebuild provided it's actually met its concerns. We know a lot about the impact of sanctions, but we don't talk a lot about the consequences of sanctions post-conflict or or post-authoritarianism, let's say. Um, We have a couple of other chapters that also deal with these big actors, whether states or international organizations. One of my colleagues here at Notre Dame, uh, another colleague of mine, Lori Nathan deals with the question of effectively how do you negotiate with armed actors to bring about the end of armed conflict so think of rebels and guerrillas and the state um to what extent do you give them what they want so they'll stop fighting and killing people knowing that that can also include having to give them some degree of impunity so it's the challenges over impunity right these challenges over mediation and laurie like a lot of our contributors is someone who is not only has a scholarly background but he's he's a serious practitioner i mean he's been working in South Sudan and many parts of Africa. He's worked in parts of Asia. So he has a lot of experience dealing with these types of questions. Um, And then we also have some interesting work on transitional justice um, and a final set of chapter or a final chapter that we have that deals with the hard, tricky question that doesn't get enough attention, which is how do you teach students who want to go into peace building and human rights work? To contend with these questions, and Austin's already talked about it. This isn't a blueprint. You don't don't just, you know, read a set of guidelines. But how do you actually think about being exposed to these types of questions and having to do the hard work of reflective practice, as they sometimes call it? Austin, you probably have more to say about this, though.
1: You know, I I guess I guess. I, <clears throat> Part of just hearing you, you say this, Ernesto, and, and hearing these, you know, we've, we've done this sort of like flyover of these three sections. And it got me thinking about the fact that the the through line that runs through these, and this comes all the way back to Stephen, your question at the beginning, like sort of, how do you guys, you know, who are you and how'd this get started? That's that old Studs Terkel question, you know? And it's like, and, and what got us started is this sense that things that are that sit in different sections of the library are right next to each other in our own lives. And the fact is that we may give money to a, to a grassroots campaign that we really care about at the same time as we see on the news that there are there are sub-state actors uh, uh, you know, beefing with the state in armed conflict and nobody knows what to do next at the same time as, and we live these lives and the people and activists live their lives. We all live our lives in the, in the middle of a couple of different Venn circles, well, lots of them, actually but we've got three of them here and so these aren't like these kind of um uh, i don't know now for something completely different record scratch between the sections but for our own home fields of social movements human rights transnational and international justice we're trying to and peace building we'll sort of have have that lens as well We're, we're trying to ask what cuts across all of these things and the fact is that if you take these kind of fields or these perspectives or or scholarly traditions on their own in isolation, one is more internationally focused. One is more domestically focused. One is more sort of attuned to institutions and norms. Another is more in- focused on social movements. But what we tried to do in this book is to is to say these things are all overlapping in struggle in you know struggles for peace, rights, and justice. And you can't have you know we could have done this three different books. This is the this is the systems and institutions book. Or, well, this is the social movements book, and then we wouldn't get read by one another. We would end up in these little silos, these like narrow, narrow sitescapes, you know, citationscapes or something. But what I love about this is there's a little bit of an unlikely bedfellows component to the way that we're pulling we just we were just talking about Black Lives Matter ten minutes ago, and now we're talking about, about sanctions. And and we're trying to argue that doing the right thing is tough across all of those different types of action, whether it's international or national, it's substate, it's individual actors, it's 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 NGOs and IGOs, it's other states. And so that's the real invitation here is to see the, the action we're embedded in as um, rhizomic or the middle of a Venn or interconnected, whatever sort of metaphor we, we want for that. Yeah.
0: This is the New Books Network, and you have been listening to Austin Choi Fitzpatrick and Ernesto Verdeja uh, talk about their new book, uh, co-edited with Douglas Irvin Erickson called Wicked Problems, the Ethics of Action for Peace, Peace, Rights, and Justice from Oxford University Press and cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, And I hope that you've all gotten a a good sense of of the multitudes that are contained within those pages and it piques your interest. Uh, Ernesto, Austin, thank you both so much for joining us today. Much appreciated.
2: Thank you. This was great. Thank you so much.